Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Hey, listeners, we're back at it here at the Engine Professional Podcast. Uh, my name is Steve Fox, and I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Lynch. Chuck, I don't know that spring's ever going to happen here in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's typical of Chicago, though, right? <laughs> oh, it's kind of everywhere. It's like you look, There's uh, we've had some snow here the last couple of weeks. Um, snow in Indiana, I think there was some there, and it's like we're going to be... Uh, have a good weekend coming up in the 80s, but then we're going right back down to the 50s again. So hopefully yeah, we I've don't seen someone post, you know, I got, I got snow on the ground. It's supposed to be 80 Saturday. Yeah. And Mother Nature <laughs> needs to take some medicine because she's on crack. <laughs> yeah, you just, uh, I just hope we don't go from 50s to 90s. You know, I'd like to kind of gradually roll into that. <laughs> right. A little conditioning. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, uh, this podcast is for May, so uh, for us uh, Midwesterners and Indiana people, I, the month of May, kind of a special time of the year, as the Indianapolis 500 was always the month of May, and <clears throat> back when I was growing up, it kind of was a whole spectacle. Uh, it kind of took the whole month of May, and as you you were too, um, being from Indiana, it kind of, you know, you had your first week of quali- weekend of qualifying where they set the pole or the front row and then it gave bump day bump day was huge back in the day of um you know you had 40 cars qualifying for the 500 of only 33 spots so bump day was pretty fun to to watch and listen to and then you got your carb days and <clears throat> uh, which leads up to the race and it was kind of a whole like you had something every weekend you could go do at the Indianapolis 500 yeah and it actually you know, from the white collar guy to the rowdy crowd, it seemed to have a little bit of everything, you know, like NASCAR, it's kind of, you're kind of painted into, it's, it's kind of one group of people is seemingly, uh, but you know, you had the European drivers, uh, in IndyCar, uh, back in the day, it had the snake pit where things got really, really rowdy and the big bonfires <laughs> and, and so forth. So, um, I never ventured out to the snake pit, <laughs> definitely, definitely a unique event. So yeah, it's, uh, I still look forward to it. I might actually go this year. <laughs> yeah. Well, which brings us to the history. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty lengthy history this, this month that we're going to talk about because one of AERA's, uh, longest members, uh, if not the longest member of the association, they actually had several entries into the Indianapolis 500 back in the early, early days. Now, I'm sure some of you are probably trying to figure out, well, I wonder who that was. It'd be kind of cool to know. Well, it was actually Elgin Industries out of Elgin, Illinois, and they had what they called the Elgin Piston Pin Special. Because back when they first started out, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chuck, but I think really all they did was piston pins at the time. Yeah, that's that's true. And um Today, they still manufacture a ton of piston pins for many of the applications out there that you're familiar with. Uh, OE, they're big time OE piston pin manufacturer and push rods, but uh, that's pretty well known. But piston pins, they do a ton of it. Big yeah. stuff, little stuff, um, many, many applications. So we reached out to Elgin to kind of see what kind of history they could give us on their uh, history at the 500. So they actually had some entries from 1927 to 1954. And we're going to kind of give you a little, uh, I guess, syn- synopsis of each year that they were in there to try to give you some, uh, just a little bit of history about Elgin at the 500 and some of the, some of the events that took place during that time period at the racetrack. So Chuck, I'll let you begin with 1927. All right. In the year 1927, the first Elgin Piston Pin Special at the Indianapolis 500 was 
a miller entered by Henry Colbert, like Kohler, but with a T, Kohler, a car dealer from St. Charles, which actually is a, a community near Elgin as well, who proposed to drive himself, although he apparently had very little actual racing experience. Car was numbered number 23. After driving in practice, Colert decided to let a more experienced driver, Fred Licklider, qualify it. Licklider started in the 30th position out of 33, but on lap 17, he stopped and turned the wheel over to Colert. On lap 49, Colert tangled wheels with Cliff Berger and crashed upside down while Berger kept going to finish ninth. You know, and I was doing some history. Uh, they sent that information over, and then I found a little more history there. <laughs> like the average speed for that race was ninety-seven point five miles per hour. Heck, there's people that do that on the interstate now. <laughs> <laughs> not in the left lane, though. Nah, not yeah. <laughs> That's where all the grampies ride. <laughs> uh, the pole speed was like one hundred and twenty miles an hour. <clears throat> And the race winner actually won. And this is what kind of, kind of when I read it, I had to read it like three or four times. They actually won by 722 seconds, which comes out to be about 12 minutes. Wow. <laughs> I mean, heck, this guy's done, loaded up, got his money, and he's headed home by the time second place rolls around. <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt there was any going back to – uh the <laughs> camera footage there. Let's see yeah. who won this one. <clears throat> the guy that was in the shower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <And> everybody else. <laughs> so in 1928, Kohler qualified the car himself, 28th out of 29 starters. So they did not have a full field in 1928. After only five laps, he came in and turned the wheel over to relief driver Shorty Canton, who shared the rest of the way with WE Doc Shattuck. It was still running when the race was concluded, completing 180 laps and paid for 13th position. The irony is that relief drivers rarely been credited throughout history. And since Kohler started the race, he's listed as finishing 13th in spite of only having driven five laps. Wow. That's not cool. <laughs> no, that's not. But that was the, you know, that was one thing I learned um, as I was doing a little research on this the other day was, there were a lot of relief drivers for these guys. Like there was, I think one team had like five or six relief drivers with them. Um, you know, as we progress down the history here, you'll find that one guy got out of his car because it had a failure and then jumped in somebody else's car and ended up winning the race. So it's, uh, it was crazy back then, you know, and now it's just these guys get in and they're three hours and they're out. <laughs> yeah, man. Good way to pump up your ego, though. Have good backups. Get yes. Yeah, if I yeah. can not crash out in five laps, then I can turn it over. Somebody can really drive. So I'll start the race. I'll give it to somebody better than me, but I'll get credit for the fourth place finish. <laughs> <laughs> but from 1929 to 1934, there was no Elgin Piston Pin sponsored entries in the Indianapolis 500, which brings us to 1935. There was one Elgin car entered, number 38, by Frank Briscoe, but it never made a qualifying attempt and it only and may have only been driven briefly during practice. Briscoe drove another car in the race. So there's a prime example. Like like he was probably a relief driver and came in and finished the or drove for somebody else. So in 1936, Frank Briscoe started 20th and finished 20th with car number 14. There was a very restrictive fuel limitation that year of only 37 and a half gallons allotted to the entire 500 miles. Briscoe, Briscoe was one of several who ran out of fuel before the end of the race, running dry at 180 laps. And another interesting fact was uh, seven of the 33 drivers that ran that race ran out of fuel due to that limitation. So you couldn't even like... Must have been a fuel shortage. Gas prices were too high back then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> uh, so, like, uh, 37 and a half gallons is all they were allowed. So, it's funny that seven of those guys couldn't make it. 
obviously probably engine combinations and a lot of factors play into that, you know, but back in 1936, they were fuel mileage racing, if you want to call it that, to get to the end. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. So in 1937, there were actually two Elgin piston pin entries, one driven by Frank Briscoe, who started 15th and finished 23rd. And he was eliminated by lack of oil pressure after 110 laps. The other was driven by veteran Dave Evans, who tried to qualify the car, but his speed was not fast enough to make the field. In 1938, Emil Andrews drove Elgin Piston Pin Special, but the car was involved in an accident in turn two on lap 45. A dislodged wheel bounced through the infield and sadly took the life of one spectator who was sitting on the back of a truck. Andrews started 28th and finished 29th. Not to... It's a sad moment. Obviously, somebody lost their life. But brings me back to that snake pit comment we talked about earlier. There was probably a little alcoholic beverages going on back then. (laughs) I bet so. So in 1939, the Elgin Piston Pin Special qualified in the 32nd position by Harry McQueen, who drove the first 12 laps of the race before handing it over to other drivers, Al Putnam, Frank Briscoe and George Robson each drove it before it dropped out with ignition failure after 110 laps. It finished in the 20th position. Still a test of parts and pieces. Oh, <laughs> that yeah. Has it changed. <laughs> no, it has not. <laughs> so in 1940, this was a big year for the Elgin as there were three Elgin piston pin specials in the 1940 Indy 500. Starting third and finishing third was Maury Rose, who drove the Elgin-sponsored car owned by Lou Moore. Only three cars finished on the lead lap that year. The second Elgin entry in 1940 was Frank Briscoe's front-drive six-cylinder, which started 29th and finished ninth with Briscoe driving. The third Elgin was Briscoe's six rear-drive entry, which was driven by Paul Russo. His first start, starting 29th and finishing 28th, eliminated by a leak oil leak after 48 laps. In 1949, they went from, they dropped down to two Elgin sponsored cars, both eight cylinder supercharged Italian Maseratis, which were very similar to the Maserati with which Wilbur Shaw won the 1939 Indy 500 with. Maury Rose won the pole at an average speed of 128.691 miles per hour, but dropped out of the race after 60 laps with spark plug issues. Ironically, Rose went on to win the race after taking over for Floyd Davis. The L, the other Elgin Maserati may have been owned by Elgin Piston Pin Company and Marty Skoke, but we're not 100% sure on that. It was driven by Duke Nalen, who started 30th and finished 15th. Duke was still running when the race had ended, but because of several stops for mechanical problems, only completed 173 of the 200 laps. 1942 to 45, there were no races because of World War II. In 1946, car number 18, a Maserati, likely the Nalen car from 1941, was entered by Frank Briscoe and driven by Emil Andres, who qualified 11th and finished 4th, completing the 200 laps with an average speed of 108.902 miles an hour. That's 12 miles an hour in a pretty short amount of time that they increased. So, pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. In 47 to 52, there were no Elgin-sponsored cars entered in the event. So in 1953, an arrangement was made with the Granatelli Brothers of Chicago, who operated a high-performance engine business called Grandcore Automotive Specialist. They fielded a brand-new Offenhauser-powered Curtis Craft Roadster as the number 59 Grandcore Elgin Piston Pin Special. Driver Fred Agabashian was the second fastest qualifier at 137.546. A new track record. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of an inside joke if you haven't heard. (laughs) You're the guy at the 500, but hey. (laughs) 
He started from the middle of the front row and finished fourth at an average speed of 126.219 miles per hour. Suffering from the oppressive heat, Agabashian climbed out of the cockpit after lap 105, and Paul Russo finished the remaining laps. In 1954, the year my dad graduated high school, Jim Rathman tried to qualify the 1953 Agabashian-Russo fourth-place finisher, but due to a misunderstanding of a pit signal during qualification, he accepted a four-lap qualifying speed of only 137.132. Not a track record. <laughs> this did not hold up as the fastest 33, and Rathman was bumped from the field. This was the last ever appearance by an Elgin Piston Pin Special at Indianapolis. And I tell you, uh, Chuck, we've been down to Elgin's facility a couple times. They're they're plant down here in Elgin, Illinois. And if anybody gets a chance, I would call down there and see if you could come in because they have some pretty neat photos on the walls to where you can, uh, I'm sure Rick or or Bill or you know whoever's there will take you around and and kind of show you those pictures and give you a little bit of history. But it's kind of it's kind of neat to see that stuff. Absolutely. You know, I've got a slew of those pictures. Um, not only their, you know, their racing history is really, really neat. But if you see what they do with, you know, they're like one of the most advanced heat treating facilities in the country, if not the world. Um, so it's, it's really neat what they do. And to link that past with, uh, with today and the fact they're still doing that and, uh, it's uh, pretty impressive. Really cool to be a part of it. And to Absolutely. Know the folks. Yeah. Yeah. And they're a good group of people. And, you know, if you're in the area and you want to come see us or, you know, if you've got a shop and you're visiting Chicago, come see us here at our headquarters and maybe we can get a little bit of tour set up for you and, and take it from there. But not saying they'll do it, but hey, it doesn't hurt to ask. Absolutely. So that brings us up to... That was a pretty good history for the month of May. I kind of enjoyed that. Brings us up to our topic of uh, what we're talking about today, which is the opportunity in the small board diesel engine industry. Um, we have a good special guest with us today, uh, Mr. Paul Kelly from Maxi Force Engine Parts. And he's going to discuss a little bit of the opportunities that are available, kind of what these engines are and, and the availability of parts in the industry. Yeah, you know, Paul, he's a excitable guy and passionate about uh, what he does, uh, this, you know, the small engine industry. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot to be gleaned from discussions with Paul today and how it can help you in your shop and some new opportunities. You know, we're seeing parts availability issues, and this is definitely, you know, an opportunity to maybe fill some gaps. So let's... Uh, hear what he's got to say and look forward to it. about small bore engine opportunities and we have a guest with us today mr paul kelly from maxi force paul how you doing doing well how you guys doing today oh uh, we're doing good living the dream they say <laughs> beautiful <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your company and what you guys do absolutely uh well first i want to say thank you uh to Stephen chuck uh, for inviting me on this uh program today to talk about small bore diesel engines uh, my name is paul kelly i'm the vice president and part owner of MaxiForce. Uh, MaxiForce is a aftermarket brand for diesel, for internal diesel engine parts. Uh, started 27 years ago by my father. Uh, we started the business with uh, John Deere, our John Deere engine line, which is our flagship line, and have progressed into what we now believe is 60 to 70 different uh, brands uh, covered under our John Deere, Caterpillar, Perkins, Kubota, Yanmar, Shibara, uh, International, uh, and Mitsubishi lines. Um, MaxiForce is a specialist in internal engine parts, uh, overhaul kits, 
cranks, cams, rods, injectors, turbos, and all the bolt-on parts around the engine. Uh, we are a specialist in what it is to rebuild an engine. Uh, therefore, we are uh, very proud and, and grateful and thankful to the AERA. Uh, over the last 27 years, uh, our presence in the U.S. market uh, began in our Miami location and now has expanded to two locations in Miami, one in Indianapolis and one in uh, Southern California. And our growth in the U.S. market is, without a doubt, very much tied to our connection to the AERA. Uh, Maxi Force would not be where it is today without the AERA. Uh, we are eternally grateful to the AERA, 100% continually committed to the AERA, um, and are really proud members uh, of the AERA and what the AERA has done for rebuilders and shops around America. Uh, and we're really, really excited to be on this program today because I think we do uh, have a, a conversation, uh, Steve and Chuck, about a, a niche in the diesel rebuilding world uh, that we play a very strong role here at Maxi Force, and so do other uh, uh, players in our in our niche. Uh, but we have kind of really focused on this small range of diesel engines that is now covered in 60 or 70 different uh, OEs um, that we're going to get into later. But uh, once again, uh, Maxi Force internal diesel engine parts. Uh, we've been around for 27 years, been a member for the ARA for I believe 26 and are totally grateful to the ARA and look forward to, to our discussion today. Now, I think a lot of guys, they uh, see the small board diesel engine market. A lot of our, I'll say gas members really don't know that how big this market is. Um, it's a big market. And you mentioned a lot of manufacturers there. What are some of the common small board diesel engines that are out there that guys should be looking at trying to do some machine work on? Well, there's, there's an engine that, that is common in many different brands. Uh, it's an engine that you can call it by three different brands, but really it's an engine that was manufactured by Shibara. It's a Japanese diesel engine manufacturer. Uh, Shibara cr uh, produced that engine. It's an NF, it's, a, it's in a three-cylinder and a four-cylinder variation, for example, and then they, they market it as an N8843 and an N844. Um, Shibara sold that engine to New Holland, and you will find that, uh, engine in hundreds of the most popular new Holland and case skid steer and track loader uh, applications. As well, Shibara also sold that engine to Perkins. So that, that engine is used in a lot of uh, Perkins applications. They, Shibara also sold that engine uh, to Caterpillar where Caterpillar painted it yellow and put their own nomenclature on it uh, most commonly known in the cat world is the 3024 and the C2.2. Uh, those uh, 3024s and C2.2 went into hundreds of the most popular Caterpillar skid steer and track uh, uh, small uh, small equipment applications, uh, you know, from the 262 to the 247s, the 272s. Uh, some of the, the most popular Caterpillar skid steer applications uh, are powered by this Cat 3024, which is really a Shibara uh, 844 engine, um, and an 844, whether it be leader or turbo or non turbo um, So it's really amazing this one little, you know, range of Shibara engines, how it just spans out into New Holland, then into Case, and then into Cat. And it's the same, and the core engine is basically the same with the three or four cylinder, obviously, just the. The gaskets and the bearings change, uh, but the core engine goes into hundreds of different application models that fall within the Catton case and New Holland world. Um, of course, the part numbers are different, um, and, and we've been able to help our, our customers with that, with our cataloging it by either Shibara or by the New Holland number or by the Caterpillar number. Um, but it's really a very, very popular engine that's found in hundreds of, of uh, applications in the, in the small skid steer and track loader world really you know one of the big differences in the skid steer and the track world the engine's the same so whether the skid steer is on wheels or on track the engine is the same um it, it doesn't really change it's either a three cylinder or four cylinder it's a 
leader designated or turboed. Um, and then we, we, we take it here at MaxiForce all the way up to the uh, tier three uh, common rail engines as well. Speaking of hundreds or, you know, 150 different applications, yeah. uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that as, as you cruise up and down the road in construction sites, of course, you recognize the skid steer, the mini excavator, things of that nature. But a lot of these things, like the lift powers the lights for the work zone area. Uh, they may be using that engine, uh, air compressors and welders and all of that stuff that's sitting along the road. Um, you know, any any comments on that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons that we, we uh, also are part of another association uh, uh, called the uh, Rental Association, the ARA, is because on the rental side of things, there's a lot of those light towers, right? And a lot of those light towers that you're talking about that are on many on night construction sites will be running this little Shibara engine. Um, they'll be running it either as Shibara, they'll be running it sometimes as the CAT version, um, or you also run into on our Kubota range, how those light towers are powered by Kubota and or Yanmar. Most of the tower, light tower manufacturers, none of them from Northern Lights to, uh, uh, there's another one that's bothering me now, but none of those manufacturers of those light towers on construction sites make engines. Uh, so uh, all of those are going to be powered by small bore diesel and they're running all night long in pretty bad environments as well. Uh, and you see that a lot on the rental side of the world. Um, and, and a lot of what MaxiForce does outside of the US and some of our rental business is, is on these light tires, Chuck, that you were just talking about. Um, it's insanely popular. These engines are not exclusive to skid steers, as you said. Outside of the US, they're huge in cell phone tower uh, uh, maintenance. Uh, we don't have that problem in the US, but we do a lot of business on cell phone tower business. And it, it's either this little Shibara engine or a little um, Yanmar John Deere engine, which we can get into later. Because when you start talking about other popular skid steer applications, all of John Deere's skid steer and mini excavator, their entire range is a Yanmar engine. It's not a John Deere manufactured engine, which gets you into a whole other uh, space that's very unique to MaxiForce. But it's a space that a lot of times when a customer calls a shop and says, I have a John Deere uh, 4T and V88, which is a Yanmar manufactured engine, they don't you know, and Chuck, it maybe I, I pose the oh, question. Oh, that's probably but... one of the most common calls <laughs> that we take. You know, so 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 tell me, well, how does it? Because there's a there's a three TNE eighty eight John Deere engine that may cover. Oh my gosh, goodness! I mean, a bunch of uh, John Deere skid steers, um, and 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 a bunch of other pieces of equipment from tr small uh, uh, hobby tractors to mowers to utility tractors to skid steers. When they call, what is the main question? Is, do they not, is, there, is there a confusion that this is not John Deere? Is it, is it, because it's funny, we get questions, we get calls too. Uh, I'm you, curious how, what, when you say it's the most popular, one of the most popular questions, what is, what's the, the driver of those questions? Well, they're looking for specifications and they call and they say, hey, I have a John Deere and it's this piece of equipment and if they don't know what the engine is, it may be, hey, can you look for some things on that casting, like TNV, TNE? You know, mm -hmm. typically we're trying to help them identify what it truly is because they may have only the equipment information. Hey, I got yeah. this John Deere tractor. This, uh, But also, you know, with the Yanmar stuff, it's the marine world. We take a fair amount of calls too, trying to identify, and I don't know, like, I think I seen one of these. It was a John Deere one time, but I'm seeing this TN on it or so. So that's a bit of what we get into is just trying to help identify. And then do we have the specifications? Sometimes when it drills down deeper and they're looking for specific parts or components, then we just steer them your way. But um, yeah, you know, what's interesting is that, and one of the things that I think has to be really harped on on today's uh, podcast is the AERA's process, right? If, if you look up a 1505 John Deere mower, you may not get to the to the the fact that it's a 4T and V88 engine, but if if you get to the to the fact that you identify that it's a John Deere 4T and V88, the ARA process has the specs for that. 
it may even have a link to Maxi Force's catalog page for that because we've 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 worked on that pretty extensively. Um, but Process has a very great coverage of the engine specs for these what we like to call Yandir engines, right? Because that's <laughs> that's what they are. You know, we market we market the Yandir as John Deere under the John Deere part numbers on our catalog pages. And then we also market it under the way that Yanmar sells it, which is a Yanmar 4TNV88, but Yanmar has its own part numbers. Now, if you pulled the 4TNV out of a light tower, you're going to have to go through Yanmar and the Yanmar part number nomenclature. If you pull it from a 2720 utility tractor from John Deere, you can go through the John Deere route on the John Deere part numbers. And we have catalog pages green and red, right? Uh, but I understand the confusion because it does say Yanmar on the engine when you pull it out of a John Deere piece of equipment. <laughs> so I, 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 it confused us too when we started to develop these engines six, seven years ago. What I would hate is for a shop to turn away business because somebody called them on a 1515 deer mower with a Yanmar and they said, look, we don't, we don't have parts for that or we don't have specs for that one. Well, there is parts and ARA does have the specs for it, right? It's It's... I think that's one of the really important things, uh, Chuck, that like that I would love to highlight is all the hard work that AARA has done on process to help the shops with that information. Yeah, yeah and I'm kind of glad you brought that up, Paul, because it's, and we appreciate the comments, by the way. Um, but you're right. We have, AERA has the specs for those engines. So I think that's one thing that a guy, when they get that call, they think, oh, I don't have specs for it. So I can't do it. And then the second part of that is, well, where am I going to find parts for it? So I think having this conversation, it lets them know that, A, you can get the specs through an ERA, and then there is a source for engine parts to rebuild that engine. Yeah, and, and look, there's so many, you know, because if you start with Bobcat, it, it's Bobcat was powered by Kubota for 50 years. So I think it's well known to most shops that if, if somebody calls you the Bobcat, it's most likely gonna be a, 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 a Kubota engine. But if they call you with a Hitachi excavator model, it may not be so common to know that that's got one of the most popular small board diesel engines in the world, which is a 3TNV88 Yanmar, right? And that one, John Deere also used it but I think uh, Chuck and Steve, the last time we started talking about this and we showed you the catalog page for the 3TNV88, which the process has all the specs you need to rebuild the engine. That one engine is found in Komatsu, Gale, Hitachi, Mustang, Takaguchi, New Holland, <laughs> Hyundai, Case, Wacker, Landini. You know, So just on the Komatsu, Hitachi, Takaguchi, Mustang, Gale, and and Komatsu uh, skid steers, you're talking about a wide range with one engine. And it would be a shame if some if someone got a call for a Gale 340 or 336, 35 skid steer, which they've never heard of, um, and not know to tie back that, hey, the AERA is going to help me build this engine. And there is a source in the aftermarket that's going to help <laughs> me because since which is another topic, but the, the, the OEs, the Gales, the Takaguchis, the Mustangs, the Komatsus, the, the Case, the New Hollands, since they didn't make this engine, they didn't make the availability of the parts very easy. So um, it, it gets to a point where the prices are so high, the availability isn't so great, so they turn it down. When the ARA's already done the work to get you the specs and we've got the parts and maybe some other competitors of mine may have similar, uh, maybe not in the Yamaha range, but on maybe some of the other ones, but it's there. And that's the big part that we really wanted to harp on here, right? It's absolutely it's sharing the message. You know, that's the thing about the podcast, you know, and anyone can have access to this and you can listen to it driving down the road. It doesn't have to distract you from, from your work because it can you just listen. Um, you know, and so that's kind of the mission to let people know either hey, their specs and and parts available because I think this has always had the stigma of the, the small stuff is disposable, right? Um, you pull the head off and it doesn't have a cylinder liner kit that I can pull out. So they've seen it as disposable. But if we, if we share the mission that, Hey, this is good opportunity because these things are in, as you mentioned, 
light towers, the excavators. I mean, who doesn't have a, you know, if you own any property at all, most any piece of mowing equipment's got a small diesel in it. Um, so all your golf course mowing, uh, lights, you're like the, the man lifts. If you're working inside of a factory and servicing lights high up in ceilings, we have tons and tons of opportunity. And then, you know, you take a look at a guy, if he brings that into a shop in his mind, can I actually machine that? And, uh, you know, I would just, I would caution people that if I can machine a 350 Chevy, then this is going to be a piece. (laughs) I have, I have the size of equipment to accommodate it. Now you run out of space if you want to do bigger stuff, right? Well, my machinery is just not that big. I can't do it, but you can always take a big piece of equipment and move down to a smaller one. So I think if we can educate them about what's available, the parts and your knowledge of all of the different applications and how much effort you put into cataloging that. I mean, you mentioned stuff that, I mean, that's one of the things when I came to AERA, being in this industry for a lot of years, I thought I knew a lot of engines. (laughs) You know, I I think I knew a a pebble on a mountain. (laughs) You know, that's one of the interesting parts is that, so when you had mentioned it used to be a disposable engine. Well, sure, if you can't get the parts, and then if you finally get them, and the, and compiling the twenty numbers you need on an overhaul kit costs more than the remand or new engine, then yeah, it was a disposable engine. Uh, what we're trying to discuss today is no, it's not a disposable engine. It's a very profitable rebuildable engine, mm-hmm. and some of the biggest production builders in this country got the memo uh, from SRC to EPS, to Tidewater, to, uh, you know, all the big ones, uh, CNH Reman, um, to all of them that we, we currently are dealing with, some of them, it's because they've realized that it's a highly profitable Reman engine, and maybe twice as profitable as a gas, if I'm guessing. I would say you're probably pretty close to that, Paul, saying... Uh, almost double or two, twice as uh, profitable because <laughs> you kind of, if you've been listening to everything that we've been saying here is these things are in uh, equipment that those guys use to make money with. So when that piece of equipment is down, they're making no money. Yep. So they want that fixed and repaired or machined and, and back in going as quickly as they can. And they'll pay top dollar to to get that back going because they know they can get that money back rather quickly. Yeah, and there's another interesting tidbit about that space, uh, the skid steer mini excavator space, which is like 80% of the of the users are not the owners. Uh, and and when you own something, you tend to treat it differently uh, than <laughs> uh, than if it's something that you're just paid to just use, right? Um, and also, there's Another interesting fact, about, especially about the skid steer market and even the mini excavator market, but the skid steer market is if you if you see Bobcat, Bobcat has a catalog this big for their attachments. Now, that's fantastic. That's what makes skid steers unbelievable, right? That you could, you know, scrape snow in the morning, put a drill in the afternoon to break up the road and then put a bucket on it to pick up what you broke up, which is great. You can also, you know, mow the side of a highway with it. But not all the engines were built to do what all those applications are making that piece of equipment do. These things break and uh, they're going to break a lot. And the truth is, is that with the demand of these pieces of equipment, right? So I I was reading before this uh, podcast today that it was back in 18, it was about a two and a half billion dollar market, just the skid steer market in the United States, right? So you're talking about two and a half billion dollar market projected to be in the three and a half billion in about two or three years from now. So that's just skid steers. That's that's not backhoe loaders. That's not farm tractors, combats. I'm speaking just skid steers. And the way that these, you know, top five OEs in this space from 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 Bobcat to Cat to Deer to Komatsu to New Holland to the big, big players in the skid steer market, the way they differentiate themselves is through the attachments. Most of all of these pieces of equipment are run by a handful of engines of which the parts are available in the aftermarket through us and the specs are available through process. It's just 
continuing to harp on, on what we're talking about, Chuck and Steve, on educating the ARA members, right? I'm telling you, as you know, Chuck, from where you used to come from, the production builders have gotten the memo. Uh, they've seen the light on the small board. They're really starting to look at it. Um, and they're looking at it mostly on a volume level and a profitability level. Uh, you know, go ahead. And they're still manufactured in a manner that that's that plays in their wheelhouse. You know, the blocks still cast iron, so they can still machine the cylinder bores and things of that nature. And another thing is the end value. I mean, the complexity of an engine that goes in a Chevy Cobalt is pretty high, you know? So dual overhead cam, all of those things that drive that engine cost up. So for me to produce that engine, it's a $6,000 engine. How do I justify a $6,000 engine for a $1,200 car? But if it's something that's my livelihood, like that skid steer has great end value. Um, to use something like the BX series Kubota little tractor. Has anybody ever looked for those online used? It was in 2010, it was probably $13,000. In 2022, that same tractor is going to be $13,000 to buy it used so you know some end values there i mean that really helps support that too so i think it's a great market for our folks to look at um you know and and we've kind of digressed from you know so many people go out and they buy parts from amazon or summit or whatever i don't i don't think that's goes on in this market because it it is kind of a niche market and you don't have 50 people who make pistons for a 350 Chevy at a, a low cost. So I, I think that's another opportunity for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the interesting part about this is where, wherever you are, you're going to find small bore diesel. So if you are in a metropolitan area, you're going to find a lot. But every there isn't a farm that doesn't have at least two of these, whether it be a mini excavator, a skid steer, or a small telehandler. Um, because they are the Swiss Army knife of equipment, and they they can do so many things. And when you're in the metropolitan areas, you know part of our reasoning to getting into some of this equipment years ago was that the major infrastructure of the U.S. is not being built; it's being repaired. And you do not need a massive build bulldozer or huge excavator to repair things anymore. You can use a mini excavator, a skid steer. Uh, you know, and, and repair things that way. Um, and that's why this market is so big. You know, 15 years ago, there was five manufacturers of skid steers. Now there's 15. Um, everybody wants in. The problem is that these manufacturers didn't make engines. So they went and got them from basically the same three players, Shibara, Kubota, and Yanmar. And they all put them in all kinds of different equipment, um, which is why some of the production builders have gotten into it, but have had a hard time getting parts even from the OEs, even when they're in connection with the OEs. Um, and the shops are facing the same problem. They're calling a dealer down the road who's telling them a crazy price and then a, a really long delay time. And so they just may walk away from the job, not knowing that there's a source in the aftermarket with ready available parts and amazing engine specs in process. Um, and I, I know I keep harping on it, but I really think that's the most important part of, the, uh, uh, of this call, unless I'm missing something. That's the foundation. It can't work without those two, right? Yeah. You know, sure. no specs, no parts, no. But, but, there, <laughs> no but there's also, the, the, but there's also the, the, the fact that we've got the cataloging where you can search by the piece of equipment that it is, a Takaguchi 130. Here's the engine options. It could either be this engine or that one. And then you get to our catalog page. And then the same thing goes in process. You search Yanmar, 310V88. Turbo, non-turbo, okay, turbo, and then you get to the specs. And so it, it's about the searchability to get to the answers, and it's there. It's there on what is becoming the most popular equipment range in the United States on diesel. Uh, you know, and like you said, Chuck, and, and as you know, our, our consultant, Dennis Terrell, who was the president of the ARA for a long, long time, always said, if you can do a big cat, you could easily do a small cat or a small Yamar or a small deer. It's you know, or if you do the Chevy that you were talking about, Chuck, why can't you do a small, it's a probably, like you said, a much simpler engine. You know, the, these engines are not complex in any way. Maybe when you start to get to the common rail, 
side of it, the injection side becomes a little more complicated, sure. Uh, but on the non-common rail, which is still the majority of the engines out there on this space, they're not complicated to rebuild. They are complicated to get OE parts at an affordable price. That is an impossibility, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That, that's the complication, but that's why we're here. There is aftermarket options um, and there's aftermarket information and there's engine information. Right, and to your point, um, actually, we have several vendors, members, associate members that uh, advertise, and they're in process, and we have links to their websites, to their lookup catalogs, and so forth. And I know you've spent great time and effort in working with the team here at AERA to get that so that if you're actually looking in that Yanmar TNV, it's not only going to take you to your website it's going to take you to that particular application it's driven the, the hyperlinks are connected that well that you'll actually go to that application from their lookup so yeah i mean that's a powerful tool absolutely you know when you're in the process and you search a cat c2.2 engine and our link is there it's going to land you on our c2.2 catalog page where you're going to see the the overhaul kit that's available, that's only available for MaxiForce. Caterpillar does not offer overhaul kits for any skid steer applications. Um, so it's a one part number solution that really helps AERA members not have to order 20 different part numbers to rebuild an engine. But along with that, you're gonna see the crank and the cam and the rods and the oil pump, the water pump and the injector, uh, the fuel lines, you know, all those little parts that they may not know were available and it's in one page and it came and, and you landed there directly from process. The same for our Kubota, our Yanmar line, our Yandir line. We're all con we're, we're connected in process. And as we develop engines, we we always call Steve and say, we got a new one for Kubota and how do we link it? And, and you know, because I think the power of the process is just beginning when it comes to tying the source to the engine information. I think we're just scratching the surface uh, from, from the educational side of letting letting the AERA members know you've got parts for these small diesel engines. They're, they're, they're available. Look, look around, call the AERA, call, check the process. But the power of the process um, is such an incredible tool the AERA members have at their hands uh, that it, it, I think the AERA members, some have seen the light, but I think more need to really get involved with process, do a test trial, um, really get in there and, and, and dig because I have recommended it for many of our uh, engine shops here in, and outside of the U.S. as well. Um, and, and a lot of them have been really satisfied. And then when it links direct to our catalog page at MaxiForce, it's just like so, it's just an easy, you know, okay, well, I've got the specs. Now I've got the parts. Oh, look, I'm going to click here and order this on the MaxiForce page. And now I've got a kit, an overhaul kit for a Hitachi I never thought I was going to work on. Um, that's really the end goal of what we're talking about today. I know. And just, you know, for redundancy on driving some of this home. Okay, so yeah. we've been talking Shabur a lot and Yanmar a lot. But just tell, let's uh, bring up some of the other products that you've got, again, that you've got a good uh, coverage on. Well, when it comes to deer, uh, basically every small compact uh, deer tractor is covered. Um, so from the little mini excavator that looks like a toy to the entire skid skid range up to tier three uh maxi force covers uh the same for new holland uh new holland is a very very popular uh brand of skid steers for the us so a uh, new holland uh bobcat uh probably the last 30 years of bobcat covered through the kubota engine side uh bobcat was primarily kubota powered for its entire life uh the case line as well cover all the cases on the small board diesels um when you get into the yanmar our yanmar engine coverage then you get into uh komatsu gale mustang takaguchi um terex hitachi hyundai um even, a, even Lugong, which is a ch Chinese tractor that's entering the U.S. market, uh, you know, it, those lines open you into, you know, like you had said at the beginning, Chuck, to 60, 70, 80 different brands of applications that are now existing in the U.S. market. 
uh, Takaguchi in my part of the world in Southern Florida is very popular. Um, but there's parts of the world that are New Holland is like the owner of the space and small equipment. Uh, but you go somewhere else and Bobcat has a, you know, in the Northeast, Bobcat has a really strong presence. Um, in the Midwest and in the more rural areas, it's really usually a farmer or in the more rural areas will buy a small piece of equipment from the closest one next to it, right? So a farmer bleeds New Holland, bleeds deer, bleeds agco. But when it comes to skid steers and mini excavators, it's usually who's the closest guy down the street that's got it. And, mm -hmm. and that's where you get into all these different makes and models, right? And it's funny because Yanmar owns a company called ACV, right? And ACV basically manufactures like skid steers under a bunch of different brands. So Mustang and Gale and uh, the Cup Cadet skid steers are all manufactured, you know, by the same owner. Uh, they just have different brands, different colors. Mm -hmm. Like oil filters. But Go down yep. a different line, different paint job. <laughs> yes, sir. That's exactly it. But the engine is a Yanmar inside, right? right. Uh, and on the on that end. But when John Deere uses the Yan Deere engine, they they paint it green and put their part numbers on it and their and their engine model on it. Um, and so our coverage on the small equipment, it, honestly, it, it's endless in many ways because we find a new Hitachi or a new Hyundai, a, a mini excavator, a Komatsu. In Komatsu, the under 80 horsepower is all Yanmar powered. Now they've Komatsu tried to hide that and create their own uh, engine uh, model number, uh, which we've been able to crack. And, and we need to share a little bit of that with the AERA on the process side and get a little bit deeper into that. Um, but all the Komatsu skid steers and mini excavators are Yanmar powered, all of them. Um, so. It's just, when you say the popular ones, it's it's so much. Um, we catalog, I would say, a couple hundred Komatsu uh, applications um, that are all uh, skid steer and little mini wheel loaders. They're all Yamar powered. Um, and it, it's, it's amazing, I mean, how many of these things are. And that's why there's no doubt that there's shops turning away some, some business because you say I got a Komatsu skid steer, and you're like, "Well, I, I don't, I don't know how to get Komatsu aftermarket parts." Well, it's it's not necessarily Komatsu; it's Yanmar. But you gotta dig a little deeper, you know. Well, and I think that's what again today that's what this is going to help us share. And when we take the phone calls, we'll also say, "Hey, listen to the podcast," because there's too much to list, you know, off the top of our head, but. Um, we can definitely steer them that way more and more. Um, yeah, this, this know. part of the industry really, it, it excites me. You know, I've looked at it for a lot of years and, you know, and been intrigued by it. So it, it's nice to be able to have something that we can share and offer. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot about the, you know, gasketing and pistons and bearings and whatnot, things like oil pumps. Do you, uh, yep. offer coverage and so forth on those things as well? Uh, yeah, we basically offer all the, the, the overhaul kit and the bolt-on parts to be able to rebuild an engine, put it back in a piece of equipment, and put it back to work. From injectors to repair sleeves to water pump, oil pump, thermostats, lift pumps, the complete valve train covers to rebuild the cylinder head, uh, all the bolts from head to rod bolts, uh, tappets, camshafts, cranks, uh, overhaul gasket sets, individual gaskets as well. Um, we are engine specialists. That's all we do. Uh, we don't, MaxiForce doesn't do a transmission or injection pumps. We stick to everything you need to take that engine apart and rebuild it. Uh, starting with the overhaul kit, which is our big core business here in the U.S. market. So now that we've kind of driven home that the parts are available, um, there is a source for them. What what other information would they need besides like uh, uh, the engine model number? Do they need a serial number? Do they need an arrangement number to try to get the right parts for that engine? Just trying to educate, the... just trying to educate the shop. Like it's not as simple as, Hey, I got a 350. It's there's a little more information you need to get off of that piece of equipment or off that engine to get the correct parts. It, it depends. I, 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 there's, you know, if you have a 216 B skid steer, and you know that the engine is turboed, um, then you can come direct to the catalog page by just clicking 
Caterpillar 216B. It's non-turbo, turbo. It's turbo. Boom. You get taken directly to the catalog page. Uh, but in the instance of which you don't know uh, the engine model, you only know the application, then yeah, you're going to need the on the cat side, the arrangement. On the deer side, the uh, serial number. So like a 3029TF2150 or a 4045TF140 or 150. Um, so depending on the brand is where you're going to come in uh, to different uh, needs. So on CAT, if if the application isn't known, then you have an arrangement. You search the arrangement on our page. It'll take you to the catalog page where that arrangement exists. Uh, on DEER, if you have the uh, model of the equipment, it will almost 99% of the time take you direct to the catalog page where you need to find it. On Yanmar, it gets a little more complicated if it's in a Komatsu. If it's not in a Komatsu, then we need the Yanmar uh, serial number. Uh, in Kubota, usually we just need the engine model and then a few side uh, uh, questions like where the solenoid is or where this injection pump sits on the engine, a couple of uh, little details. Um, but if you have the exact Bobcat model number, it should take you directly to the catalog page. So it really depends and lands on, on the brand and which of the engine is or in the equipment that it lands in, right? So it all depends on, on a, a couple of those factors. Well, it sounds like you. Uh, if you go to your site, you have the ability to narrow that down. Like, <clears throat> we're not just leaving the guy out in the middle on an island. You're going to no. try to help him get to the right engine parts for that engine. It took us two years to develop the latest website, so that <laughs> one of those angles is going. One of those angles, you're going to get your answer, the answer to your question, and you're going to land on the proper catalog page where you can start to order. Right? Uh, it's going to happen many more times than not. Because you're either going to search it by the engine, so you're going to put John Deere 3T and V84, is it turbo, non-turbo? Then you're going to get to that catalog page. Or you're going to go by the Caterpillar 216B with a 3024 non-turbo. With this arrangement, you land on the catalog page. There's, nothing, there's no more questions to ask. That's the answer. That's everything that we've got. There's the kit. Um, you need engine specs, jump over to your other screen and search 3024 non-turbo uh, after Caterpillar. And you're going to get the engine specs, right? So on the MaxiForce uh, site, there's a general search where you can search a part number, an arrangement, a serial number, a 416D uh, or 216B. Or you can search by the detailed search by the engine brand. So you have a John Deere, then you have the engine model. Or you can jump over and say, I've got a, a Mustang or I've got a Takaguchi a, let's say uh, like a TB-135, it's going to give you the options, 3T and VT or non-turbo. Okay, I got a turbo. And that's going to take you direct to the catalog page. You won't have to even click anymore. It just lands you there. So you have three very detail-oriented ways to get the answer to what kit we have or do we have the rod, do we have the oil pump for that engine? It'll land you on the catalog page. And then and the, and the adverse, if you start from the process and you do a Kubota V2203 turbo, you're going to land on the process page and there's going to be a link there that takes you directly to the MaxiForce catalog page for that exact engine. Do you do most of your uh, stuff direct with the end user or, you know, what about uh, the folks that are set up with a particular warehouse that they, they favor? Yeah, th that depends. You know, AERA members, for the most part, we sell direct. Now, there's some that prefer to go to some of our larger, like, let's say, like a, a Liberty or an EPWI or, you know, some of the, the big larger uh, automotive houses where that's their the shop's core business. And this, the diesel is just a, a few one-offs uh, here and there where they have already credit with their, you know, their local uh, WD and so we say, okay, perfect. We're we're set up with all the local WDs. So, you know, the EPWIs and Liberties and all those guys. And so we would say, oh, perfect. Well, this is what you need. You know, call this location because it's closest to you, and 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 we'll drop ship it from uh, direct to you through them. And we do so. We do both, right? Mm -hmm. And the AERA shops that diesels the major component. Uh, we're probably already working with them, um, and if not, we'll, we'll, we can sell direct. Well, I hope our listeners have, have taken one thing away from this, that this is a big market, uh, a big market that uh, has some great opportunity in it. 
on the machining side as well as there are parts available for that. And if they wanted to go look at your website, Paul, where what what's your web address there? Uh, maxiforce.com as in Amazon Mary, A-X-I, F as in Frank, O-R-C-E.com, maxiforce.com. And that'll be a good, I gives them a good uh, landing spot on to kind of see what parts are available for these small bore diesel engines that they can potentially rebuild and make some good money at. Absolutely. And and we've got three locations in the U.S. covering about 90% of the content of the U.S. in one or two days. So uh, it's readily available and uh, there either tomorrow or the next day. So uh, we are always uh, happy uh, to work and help uh, AERA members. Uh, we're eternally uh, grateful to the AERA and so thankful to you both for, for giving me the time today. Perfect. <clears throat> Chuck, you got any other questions? I'm good. Good deal. Well, Paul, thank you so much for all your comments, uh, your accolades of AERA. We appreciate it. We appreciate you coming on and all your support that you've given to the association over the years and enlightening our listeners on the opportunities and small board diesel engines. Absolutely. It's totally my pleasure. Thank you so much. Chuck, that was a great interview with Paul. Uh, he shed a lot of information, a lot of light on some information about these small board diesel engines and the type of equipment they're used in. And and, and the interesting thing I that I got out of it was this one little engine is using about 20 different pieces. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff I've never heard of even, you know. Again, you know, I think I've shared this before when, you know, I came from a, a high production engine environment and you think that you are pretty privy to a lot of applications and so forth. And I come to AERA and I'm like, man, I didn't know anything <laughs> about what's out there. And then yet again today, you know, Paul's throwing out these mishmash mixed up applications and this uses that and stuff I've not heard of from all over the globe. I mean, you know, if you don't learn something every day, you've not had a good day and mm -hmm. I learned something. And I think we mentioned it several times in the, in that interview with Paul. And I think it's worth mentioning again, obviously that any shop can do this. It's you don't need, you have the equipment there. It's, it's a round hole. You're going to bore it. You're going to machine it. You're going to mill it. You have all the equipment to do that. And the parts are available. So don't turn that work away. Uh, it can be done and you can be very profitable at it. Yeah. I, I you know, I talk with folks on the, on the tech line often. And sometimes I think the guys who do big stuff think they can only do big stuff. And you're actually in the advantage when you do big stuff because you can do smaller stuff. It's sometimes your equipment, you run out of space yep. and you can't do really big stuff <clears throat> if you're kind of set up to do small stuff. But this stuff here gives that, if you can do a 350 Chevy, you can do this the Kubota, you can do the Shabura, you can do the Yanmar. Um, and so I'd like to say it's a great opportunity. And it even harkens back to what we're kind of familiar with more often. More of this stuff still cast iron. Yeah. No FRN cylinders, no Alucil and so forth. So this is pretty straightforward for our guys. Correct. Correct. No, that was a good conversation with Paul, and uh, hopefully people get some uh, good information out of that that they can use in their shop to start working on those small board diesel engines. So next, our next episode, we're going to introduce you to a member of our team that joined, oh, what, probably about a year ago, Chuck? About a year ago. Yeah. Yep. Um, it was recommended to us by Chuck, so Chuck, I'll let you do kind of the intro and kind of the teaser for what's going to happen. All right. So we'll take a little opportunity to sit down and chit chat with, uh, Fernando Corello. Uh, I've known Fernando for a lot of years. Um, I won't spill too much, uh, but he spent his whole career uh, around valve training stuff. So he's a great guy to have on the team. He speaks multiple languages. Uh, that was, and he had retired and got kind of bored and he was kind of following what we do in engine professional magazine and presentations we do. And he reached out and was like, 
hey, you know, I'd like to do a little bit of something. So uh, it worked great for all of us. And yeah. so uh, look forward to everyone else to get to know him as well. He's definitely been an, he's been a shot, immediate shot in the arm. Absolutely. And uh, very knowledgeable, good, uh, very smart, uh, has a lot of information uh, stored up there. And it'll be good to do a nice little interview with Fernando and let the, let the listeners know a little bit about him and, and where he come from. So if you haven't subscribed to the Engine Professional Podcast, please do on your favorite podcast listening platforms, or you can listen online at podcast.engineprofessional.com. And if you have any questions for Chuck or comments for Chuck and I, you can email us at eppodcast at aera.org. Well, Chuck, this is probably one of the longer episodes that we've had. Have we left anything out? I... Man, I'd have to dig a little bit. Let's <laughs> let's try not. <laughs> let's try not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you what, uh, since it is May, everybody enjoy your Memorial Day, a uh, long holiday there, and uh, a lot of racing going on that weekend. Uh, you can watch the Indianapolis 500. Oh, there's three races actually that day because I think the uh, Formula One race in Monaco is early in the morning. Then you can flip over to the Indianapolis 500 in the afternoon. And then you can watch the NASCAR race Sunday night. So, so you can be a couch potato uh, with gravy. I, mean, I will that, be a. Uh, I will be in front of the TV probably. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. Support, support us. <laughs> I'll be recovering Monday, probably walking around after all that food I've been eating son Sunday, sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I wish everybody a happy, uh, happy and safe holiday, and we'll talk to you next time. Until next time, bud.